0: The Man of God Network exists to help the church in her mission to identify and equip qualified faithful men for the gospel ministry and for the recovery of biblical reformation in our day. It's our joy to provide you with resources that both encourage you and edify you as you seek to build Christ's church where you are, to the end that He is better known, loved, and exalted. We appreciate the support of our listeners. To learn more about how you can help us accomplish our mission, visit manofgodnetwork.com. Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to scripture, and Christ exalting. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. My name is Dewey Doble, and today I have the privilege of talking with Dr. Andrew Walker about a very important subject that has never been discussed in our previous episodes, and that subject is none other than natural law and I believe there are few Baptist scholars as qualified to cover this subject than that of Dr. Andrew Walker. Dr. Walker, it is a pleasure and a privilege to have you on today's show.
1: Dewey, it's good to be with you, man, and uh, just always glad to get a chance to chat with you. So it's a privilege to be here.
0: Yes, sir. Absolutely. And we were just talking before the show that um, I'll have the privilege of studying under Dr. Walker again uh, in January at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. So maybe have some, some follow-up conversations as to, right. to what we talk about today. But um, Dr. Walker, to get our conversation started, would you be willing just to introduce yourself to our listeners, maybe share a bit about uh, your upbringing, your education, and, and your current roles in Christian academia and ministry?
1: Yeah, yeah. So um, good question. I'm originally from central Illinois. I grew up uh, in kind of the cornfields of, of Jacksonville, Illinois not anywhere near Chicago, because people always ask, oh, you're from Illinois, that means Chicago. No, not Chicago. Uh, And grew up in a Southern Baptist church in Illinois, which a Southern Baptist church in Illinois is very different than a Southern Baptist church in Alabama or Kentucky for that matter, just a different kind of place. Um, I would have known myself to be more evangelical than Baptist, um, but I'm proudly Baptist now, right? (laughs) And so I went to Southwest Baptist University, where I majored in religion and theology, and then did my MDiv, THM, and PhD at Southern, and graduated from there with my PhD in May of 2018, and then started teaching here at Southern um, November 1st of 2019, and um, coming up uh, on the start of four years of service here soon which seems crazy to think it's been four years, mostly because COVID makes it, makes it uh, feel like I'm still brand new up here, honestly. Uh, and then up here in Louisville, my wife's a school teacher at our local classical Christian school. We've got three daughters, ages uh, almost 12, almost eight, and then a four-year-old, so the lone male in a house. Uh, and by way of ministry, so I mean, I'm teaching full-time And I'm also a fellow with the ethics and public policy center, which is a think tank in Washington, DC. And then under Dr. Moeller, I serve as the managing editor of world opinions um, where we try to provide daily Christian commentary on a lot of the pressing issues facing Christians in our culture. And then uh, in my local church, I help teach a Wednesday night class for a men's Bible study. And then I also lead a community group on a Sunday morning. And I go to Highview Baptist Church here in Louisville. And uh, in my free time, I'm usually reading or writing or watching something with my wife or hanging out with my kids uh, or running. Running is like my one hobby or outlet uh, because if you're in the fortunate position that I'm in with my life, my calling overlaps with my hobbies. And so the stuff that I enjoy reading in my leisure time also benefits me for my professional career. So um, my life is one where I feel like I uh, have been called to help Christians understand uh, the calling of God in their lives, both practically, so our everyday ethics, but then also how to relate Christian ethics to the broader cultural arena, as far as how we think about how our ethics translate as Christians to the public arena, uh, which you know a, a kind of explains why natural law has become such a, a dominant focus in my career.
0: Amen. Not, and that that is what I was going to say next. As, as busy as you are and given your upbringing in Baptist circles, how in the world did natural law come into the purview of your interests? I think that uh, just to yeah. get us a- to get us kind of going into the direction of natural law, um, maybe explain a little bit about how you got intrigued with natural law, and then and then go into um, a working definition of natural law, and and maybe some of the uh, historical developments of natural law based on your studies in this field.
1: Yeah. So goodness, there's a lot there. Um, how I got interested in this, you know, I can say this uh, with with a high degree of just you know almost recent clarity. Um, I would say my entire career has been animated around these issues of the natural law, even if I couldn't distill all of those issues kind of underneath one umbrella of the natural law. So I can think back to um, my childhood and my teenage years when I was really interested in how Christianity relates to the world. Uh, And then when I get into college, I spent a semester at the Focus on the Family Institute, where I'm learning about Christian public ethics as regards the family and the sanctity of the unborn. Uh, And then my first job out of seminary was working for a public policy organization here in Kentucky, where I focused on life, marriage, religious liberty, which are all issues tied to the natural law. Um, And it was actually when I was in seminary, I I can pinpoint the moment where uh, actually, no, this would have been, I think, in college, actually, I got a book by a professor named Robert George, who I didn't know at the time, Uh, but this book titled The Clash of Orthodoxies. And this was a book that was looking at how so many of the conflicts in our culture are related to absolute claims about moral values from either non-Christian perspectives or Christian perspectives. And it creates that clash of orthodoxies, right? Um, Non-Christians have their own orthodoxies and Christians have their orthodoxies. And so it's a, it's a conflict. And I remember reading that book by Robert George and you know, in the book, he talked about how the fact that he was a, a Catholic Christian but he didn't really invoke scripture very much. Not that he was anti-scripture at all, Um, but what I noticed him doing was providing incredibly profound articulations on the rational coherence of what it is Christians believe on all of these hot button cultural issues. And I didn't know it at the time, this was probably 2007, he was articulating natural law uh even though you know he, he mentioned natural law in the book but that was still the new concept all i knew was i was reading a book that i was understanding wow here's a here's a christian who is making arguments that someone who rejects scripture would have to contend with the power of these arguments and so uh that led me out of seminary to go work for some public policy organizations where i was dealing with these issues on what is marriage What is a human being by way of male and female? What is a human being by virtue of their right to life? Uh, And then, uh, you know, I worked for the Heritage Foundation in Washington, D.C., and then worked for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission in Asheville. And all the issues I was studying kind of circumnavigated around issues of the natural law. Uh, And at the time, you know, in my kind of development, I hadn't necessarily studied natural law theory. I had just kind of studied applied natural law is how I would kind of define it. And so I would say over the last seven years, um, I've been immersed really deeply in kind of not just the applied issues, but kind of the the very foundational theoretical questions around what what is the natural law? How do we understand the natural law? What is What is the law written on the heart that Paul talks about in Romans chapter two? Uh, And so this has really become my life, so to speak, is if you're going to be a Christian who is passionate about relating the truthfulness of our ethics to the public arena, you're going to have to engage in conversations of natural law, whether you want to or not. Uh, But that brings us to the question you asked about what is a definition of the natural law? Uh, So the challenge there is I could offer I, in my class, I offer about six different definitions, <laughs> so I, we don't have time for that today. Uh, but here in, in our time together, I would define the natural law as uh, moral obligations for rational creatures. So moral obligations for rational creatures. Um, there's a, a few significant theories or ideas packed into those four words. So moral obligation for rational creatures, technically five. Um, Meaning that we think that morality is binding. Uh, The notion of there being a moral universe is the fact that morality exists. Uh, Then you have questions about who orders that morality. Uh, And that's where we get into questions. Ultimately, I would say that trace back to God's existence and the necessity of God. for there to be a coherent basis for the natural law. Uh, So then you get questions of the origins of it. You get questions about the uh, content of the natural law. So what is the natural law? What are the principles that comprise it? Uh, You get questions about the knowability of the natural law, which is, I, I said it's moral obligation for rational creatures meaning the natural law tradition, which I would say real quickly, the natural law tradition is a Christian tradition. It's a Christian moral tradition, has always understood that by virtue of how God made us as uh, as image bearers in his image, one of the most unique attributes of being made in his image is that we bear the capacity for cognitive ability, meaning that it's our reason that, Uh, separates us from the rest of creation. Um, You know, animal scientists debate, you know, do dogs reason? That's not what I'm here to debate. What I would say is we reason, if if dogs do reason, we reason in profound ways, uh, in ways about self-reflection, kind of phenomenological and existential questions about reason that the rest of creation does not. And so the Christian moral tradition has always said that We come to understand the natural law through the law written on the heart. But that is eminently the result of the fact that it is made knowable through theoretical and practical reason, meaning that God has implanted a moral code on our heart. There's a moral order that exists that we understand through theoretical reasoning about the nature of morality itself and the cosmos that God has created. But then there's practical reasoning as well that says, uh, how do we then grasp the tenets and principles of the natural law? Uh, And that's always been a practical exercise. And, And quite frankly, it means that, you know, we do have innate moral principles that are irreducibly there the natural law tradition has always considered that what we would call the first principle of practical reason, that good is to be pursued and evil is to be avoided. That's kind of the very, very foundational principle upon which natural law starts. And then we build on top of that. Uh, And so the natural law is not meant to be necessarily this encyclopedic catalog of moral casuistry that gives us moral clarity on every question under the sun. Natural law is rather uh, the most essential foundational moral principles that God has implanted within us that we need to know uh, in order to be his image bearers in creation and to live lives of meaning, meaningness, meaningfulness, and and purpose. Um, So there's a lot more we could say right there, but then we think about the historical developments. Let's just begin by saying this. Uh, I would actually argue that natural law has been one of the dominant modes of moral reasoning throughout the history of the Christian church. It's not been the only mode of moral reasoning. Uh, There has been a strong virtue tradition in Christian ethics, for example. But as relates natural law proper, Christianity down from both Pauline sources and Jesus himself uh, up through the early church. Uh, there are natural law categories present. And then I would say the natural law comes to its apotheosis or its climactic high point in the medieval ages with someone like Thomas Aquinas, where that's where the theory is probably most articulated and codified. Uh, And then, interestingly enough, I mean, Dewey, we're kind of both Reformed Baptists here. Uh, a, A lot of of reformed brethren like you and I, you know, there's a tendency to think that the natural law is a Catholic idea. That's a, that's a, that's a false assumption. And I, I feel like one of my jobs as a professor is to disabuse people of the notion that Catholicism belongs, I'm sorry, that natural law belongs only to Catholicism. That's not accurate. If you go and read the reformers themselves, both the major reformers, as far as Calvin and Luther and Zwingli There are doctrines of natural law in their thought. But then you go and read lesser known reformers as well, like Johannes Althusius, Gioramo Zanchi, uh, Niels Hemmingsen. All of these individuals are astute natural lawyers. Now, there are further historical developments. Most uh, we would look to at the Enlightenment, where Enlightenment kind of rationalism begins to do two things. I think one attempt to develop a system of natural law devoid of any type of theological metaphysic. And we see this in the type in the work of such individuals as Hugo Grotius, that they're kind of positing a natural law that just is kind of invented from thin air. It's kind of an Archimedean natural law. It just, it just exists by virtue of reason, um, but it's not necessarily divinely uh, originated. But then we also have a developments in Uh, the decline of the natural law and the enlightenment where you begin to have kind of rationalist uh, philosophers begin to deny that you can develop any type of ought from an is. So their argument here is, uh, you know, nature doesn't have moral oughts built into it because if we remove God from the equation, all we have is just substance, not obligation. And so therefore you have the very notion of nature, of there being a nature to nature called into question. And, you know, I'm not a historian of idea, I'm not an intellectual historian, but I would like to think that a lot of the issues that we are having right now as a society are issues that flow downstream from that denial of, the existence of nature, the, the denial of teleology, uh, the, the 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 denial that nature has any nature or that there is purpose or meaning built into the essence of things, uh, into the quiddity of things is, is the academic terminology. Uh, and so now, you know, the reason something like transgenderism is possible is because maleness and femaleness is not understood to be a category with a definite structure and nature to it. Rather maleness and femaleness is is really whatever you want to pour in to that category. Uh, and so that's really why we are where we are right now and why I think that um, obviously we need scripture we need we need the revealed word of the Lord to bring final authoritative clarity. Um, but we also have to understand that when scripture speaks, it's speaking about uh, an intelligible creation order. And so if we as Christians are going to have um, a public witness, if we're going to love our neighbor as ourselves, it means telling the truth to our neighbor about the nature of how they've been made and the limits that are necessary uh, for them to live within if they're going to flourish. And so, far from natural law being something that's extraneous to our mission as Christians. I think it's inextricably bound to our mission because really, if we're going to share God's love, we're going to have to share the fact that God has ordered the world in certain ways. And the reason that people experience misery and brokenness is the fact that they have tried to transcend those limits That god has placed in us and on us and a part of our coming to christ is repenting of our rebellion from that creation order do we have gone on way too long brother so uh you you offer some conversation and and some and some dialogue here because otherwise i'm just gonna start lecturing for the next 30 minutes
0: Hey, I think that would be great for our listeners, and and I, I've got a front row seat enjoying all these rich truths you've shared. You've given a wonderful definition of natural law. You've you've articulated how it's been developed about church history, and and how it's directly connected to the church's mission to love our neighbor as ourselves. And and you also we're
1: done, now, right? we're done, right? That's everything.
0: I mean, <laughs> basically, I mean, you, we we've solved every issue related to. Um, whether or not natural law should be pursued and and known by christians in the 21st century so i think that uh, and we've done it in 20 minutes so i I think that we need to get this uh, episode circulated far and wide as quickly as possible Um, i love how you tied though towards the end of your um, your response there to that question about its roots in scripture or its its connection to scripture Um, because i think a lot of people would say maybe ignorantly but but they they would say this the natural law it could be regarded as a catholic doctrine could also be regarded as purely philosophical speculation. And I I wonder if you'd be willing to provide just a brief argument or defense for natural laws, biblical roots. What are some key passages that that ordinary Christians can go to who are listening to today's show? They can go to scripture and say, hey, this text is affirming that natural law is rooted and grounded in God's special revelation.
1: Yeah. I mean, so Dewey, great question. I mean, um, and I I should add right now, I'm actually working on a book that uh, I'm almost done with. It won't come out until 2024, unfortunately, Um, but I'm working on what I'm, it's tentatively titled His Glory, Our Good. And it's intended to be kind of a natural law evangelical introduction. So these types of questions about, you know, the biblical foundations for it. Um, I think the, you know, the, preeminent text exegetes would look to is Romans 2, 14, and 15, and I'll just read those real quickly. Um, For when Gentiles who do not have the law, and I think he's referring to the Mosaic law, uh, uh, by nature, law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Now, I take the position, kind of the majority position in the history of interpretation of this text that Paul is talking here about uh, non-Christian Gentiles who have an awareness of the moral law, not the Mosaic law, because they didn't have the Mosaic law. That was for Israel. But he's saying that they have a law that is written on their hearts uh, where it goes on to say uh, that their conscience also bears witness, meaning their conscience it, 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 it impinges upon them to the, to the recognition of a, a law written inside of them. So I think Romans 2 is uh, the most important text. But even if you go to Romans chapter 1, Verse 32, it says, though they know God's righteous decree and those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So that language of though they know God's righteous decree. Uh, so that means that th- there is there is uh, a, a decree, an order that God has placed in the universe uh, and that they know that it exists. The problem is, as Romans 1 talks about, uh, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And this is a huge truth that I want to make sure I'm, I'm really clear on right now. In my view of things, our problem is not our knowledge of the natural law. Scripture makes it pretty clear that we have knowledge of the natural law. Our problem is a volitional problem, is that we know the natural law but we disobey it. We suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And the reason this matters is because if we're going to say people can be truly held guilty and accountable for their sin and for their wrongdoing against a holy God, they have to know the nature of the moral system that they've broken. They have to know the divine origin of that moral law of who they've sinned against and so again, it's it's not. Now I I will say, no doubt, sin does obscure uh, our you know the 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 finer remote applications of the natural law. Um, but the most basic principles of the natural law, we do know. Um, I don't actually have to convince someone that murder is wrong. Every human being with a functioning brainstem understands that murder is wrong. And in fact, if you go to the the abortion debate right now, the abortion debate is not over whether murder is good. No pro-abortion individual would say that they're pro-murder. Rather, what the pro-choice individual is doing is denying that the child is a person. So therefore, if they're not a person, it's okay to end their life because it's not murder. You're just ending the existence of a biological organism who's not a person. Now, I think that they're mistaken, obviously. uh, But that goes to show you that there is a cognitive misfire and a cognitive misunderstanding that sin introduces into the mind that leads them to go down a path of utter futility. Um, But generally speaking, uh, in Louisville, Kentucky, 99.99% of people are going to go to bed tonight not murdering each other, because we understand that life is one of those intrinsic basic goods that we want to protect and foster uh, a a protection around. Okay, so those are just a couple verses. There's so much more. Um, I would actually point us to Genesis chapter one, where the very existence of creation order itself, so that when God posits the very notion of creation order and creation, That assumes that there has to be order built into it, right? So God isn't going to just create a cosmos and then say to the cosmos, okay, you now run according to however it is you want to run. Rather, God is going to create ex nihilo and then he's going to then order, bring order to uh, what he's created such that his image bearers can find their way within it, even if it is done errantly because of sin. Uh, And we see this happen all the time, even today. Uh, One of the classic examples I get given this moment is uh, a few years ago, I was driving and there was a sign over the highway that the Tennessee Department of Transportation had put up that said, drive safely, arrive alive. And the reason I had done that is because there was an ice storm and they were trying to tell people, Hey, modify your behavior to protect your life. Well, okay. They didn't have to engage in laborious syllogisms about what that was trying to communicate. Rather, everyone simply knows, Hey, I want to arrive at my destination with my life intact and and uninjured. So if that's the case and my life is a moral good, I am then going to have to redirect and rearrange how I'm driving, that I can protect my life. And we do this, do we, a million times a day. One of the debates of the natural law, again, is how you define it. How I define it is any time any rational agent is seeking to protect themselves, their family, their spouse, that is participation in the natural law. So creation order itself, Genesis 1 explains that. Uh, Another place I would go to is the book of Amos. When Amos is indicting the nations, he's indicting the nations for the nations having violated the moral law of God. Now, the nations didn't have the Mosaic covenant, but for Amos to indict the nations, the nations would have to have some moral knowledge of a law that they have violated. Um, Isaiah 24, uh, verse six, I believe. Isaiah talks about how the nations have violated the everlasting covenant. And I think that that actually is uh, hearkening back to the Noahic Covenant. Uh, we, we could have a prolonged discussion about the role of the, natu- of the Noahic Covenant and natural law. We probably don't have time for that today. But that's another one of the foundational kind of covenantal markers that scholars have looked to is that the the, the Noahic Covenant is kind of natural law reconstituted after the global flood. Um, another verse, and I'll, I'll end here, is uh, in Matthew 7, where it says, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. Tons of sources have said that that is a principle of the natural law. That's a general reciprocity. Love your neighbor as yourself. Um, meaning if you want to do justice to other, or if you want justice for yourself, you have to do justice for others as well. And maybe I'll just s- stop here with this. Um, I think most of the reformers would have seen that the 10 commandments, um, particularly commands five through 10 are codified or distilled expressions of the natural law Mm. that um, you take the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. Um, It wasn't as though murder was okay before the sixth commandment was in place. Murder was always wrong. So it's not as though, The prohibition on murder comes into existence in Exodus 20, verse 13. Rather, what is the Mosaic Decalogue? It is a distillation, I think, of those creation order principles laid down in Genesis chapter 1 and then reaffirmed in Genesis 8 and 9 in the Noahic Covenant. There's a whole lot more here, Dewey. Uh, This is just the tip of the iceberg, but you get the sense.
0: This is wonderful stuff. And to the listener, actually, recently I, I had to write a, a paper for school, and I, I found that in my studies and uh, researching for the, the prompt that I was writing on, had to deal with natural law. Um, surprise, surprise. That's why I mentioned it in this uh, conversation. But Oxford University found that there are six universal moral principles that exist in every known human civilization and those six principles can be tied directly to the second table of the Ten Commandments. Fascinating study. Uh, we can link that in the show notes in addition to some of the resources that we're going to get into uh, later on in our discussion with Dr. Walker. But Dr. Walker, this is all wonderful, wonderful uh, stuff. I, I really think that having the biblical basis for natural law will be instrumental for our listeners who seek to defend right. it and seek to use it, uh, particularly in their evangelism endeavors.
1: Oh, um, we, I forgot to, sorry, real quick. I left out the most important one, the other most important text. Psalm Psalm 19. Oh, Uh, yes. Great passage. uh, You know, the heavens declare the glory of God, day to day pours forth speech. Um, So, the notion of creation order itself, as I mentioned in Genesis chapter one, the notion that by looking at creation, we ought to be able to look at design and then deduct Mm -hmm. principles of causality and effect that inform our operation in the world. And so, Psalm 19 Mm -hmm. is. One of the most important verses for kind of the general revelation discussion
0: well i'm glad you you mentioned that uh, because because the next question really ties into the general revelation versus special revelation from the standpoint of the natural law versus positive law distinction and and this is something that i really didn't start studying and getting into until probably a couple of years ago largely just due to, to seeing More intelligent uh, Reformed Baptists, whether it be just lay people, pastors, or scholars, on social media talking about how that natural law, positive law distinction, is essential to understanding uh, what laws um, carry over from the old covenant to the new covenant versus what laws do not. Would you be willing to touch on that um, that natural law, positive law, uh, positive law distinction, and maybe tease out some of the hermeneutics that maybe do good diligence to that distinction but others who 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 maybe don't do as well of a service to
1: that distinction so uh i mean i would begin here with the distinction between positive law and natural law positive law is what we would call codified human law so it's the law that legislatures pass um, that are duly enacted that have the force of law because you have duly enacted legislators creating the law. Now, if you are a positive law is not the same thing as being a legal positivist, a legal positivist is one who thinks that all man-made law is the beginning and end of law. And that there is no reference outside of the law other than the statute itself. And that's a deeply, I think, unchristian way of thinking about law. Um, the, The traditional formula is that all positive law, if it's justly constituted positive law, ought to flow from the natural law. So that if you have a law that is unjust, it means it doesn't actually retain the force of binding obligation on the individual, because all law, law is a standard of measurement that we are to conform our behavior to under the belief that if we fulfill this law's obligations, it's going to advance justice. It's going to advance the human good. So if a, if a, if a law does that, let's, let's take a, a seatbelt law. Someone might say that a seatbelt law is unjust. I would say, no, a seatbelt law isn't unjust. You might not like a seatbelt law because you don't want to wear a seatbelt, but it does pass the test for rational review and rational basis because the purpose of a seatbelt law is to protect your life. And so the law is trying to actually protect you uh, and, and safeguard your existence, not tear you down. Now, where we get into thicker discussions is what happens when you have unjust law that is actually doing damage to image bearers. It's it's contra the moral good. And I think the most helpful example here is to go to Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from Birmingham Jail, where what does he do? In in criticizing racial supremacy laws in Alabama, he explicitly cites the Christian natural law tradition. He cites Aquinas and Augustine, which I think is deeply illustrative for how we think about the relationship between theology and law, for one. Two, it also shows the proper relationship between religion and, and law, right? I mean, so if it's 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 okay to cite law. I'm sorry, it's, it should be okay to cite religion when religion is, is furthering the good, as Martin Luther King demonstrated. But King, in that letter, says, citing Augustine, an unjust law is not a law because... Uh, King goes on to say, any law that tears down human personality can't be just. And these racial supremacy laws tear down human personality. And so they can't be binding because, again, it's doing destruction to the image bearer. It's not seeking their good. And so thankfully, um, you know, on the whole, I mean, you may not like certain laws in the United States. That doesn't mean that a law that you don't like is unjust. Now we do have I mean I, I, we racial su- supremacy laws were patently unjust laws. Um the Roe v Wade decision in 1973 that was unjust. Thankfully Dobbs in June 24th 2022 overturned Roe. Now Dobbs didn't ban abortion nationwide, it turned the issue back to the states. But now right now where I live in Kentucky Praise God, abortion is outlawed in the state of Kentucky. So I would say the laws in Kentucky are more just than the laws of Illinois, which has egregious, horrible abortion laws still on the books. Now, the, the big issue, though, Dewey arises if you feel that a law needs to be broken because it's unjust. Um, you know, what's your reasonable chance of success in rectifying the injustice? Uh, and more importantly, what force or army do you have behind you um, to help rectify the law um, if you think there's an injustice? And that, that's kind of outside of our, our discussion for today. But that gives you an example of how laws are to be thought about at the Principial Foundation. Um, as we think about kind of relating the Old Testament to the New Testament, a couple things here is depending on how we de- discuss the Sabbath laws and, uh, and the Sabbath, nine out of the 10 commandments are uh, brought over into the new, new Testament, the New Covenant. Jesus affirms them. So I actually think that means when we look at the Decalogue, um, I'm a, I am ai would kind of position myself in kind of the progressive covenantalist line. We're not necessarily as Christians under the auspices of the Decalogue in the form that that Israel was. We are under the moral principles of the Decalogue as Christians, because those are still binding on us as new covenant Christians, but they're binding on us because again, those principles in the Decalogue, I think were handed down in creation order. And so I think this is actually a huge, this gives us an aperture to think about, that as Christians live in light of the natural law today, um, we're doing it not to obey Exodus 20. We're obeying the natural law today in order to live in accordance with the creation order established in Genesis chapter one, reconstituted in Genesis chapter nine. And then the resurrection of our Lord Jesus is an affirmation of that creation order. And so the reason, you know, so if you're thinking about abortion today, why should christians why must christians be pro-life we must be pro-life because god is the author of life christ is the author of life it says in acts chapter 3 and so the destruction of an image bearer usurps god's sovereignty as god the creator that's established in genesis chapter 1 genesis chapter 9 we read if you shed man's blood by man shall your blood be shed that's a recapitulation of creation order. Genesis or uh, uh, Exodus 20, verse 13, Sixth Commandment distills that command, thou shalt not murder, that, that was begun in creation order. We then go to the New Testament. It's still wrong to murder image bearers in the New Covenant. Uh, and a part of the reason that's the case is because we have the Spirit inside of us illuminating us to understand that all persons are made in God's image and they bear intrinsic worth and dignity and deserve respect under the law, born and unborn because God is their creator and their author. Uh, And so you have to kind of do some textual work, looking at the epoch of scripture, looking at the full canon of scripture, looking at uh, the eschatological age, looking at the eschatological promises uh, when we're thinking about relating Old Testament to the New Testament or Old Covenant to the New Covenant. Um, but when we're thinking about, you know, perhaps the Mosaic Law and New Testament, one of the examples here is to to think about Deuteronomy 22, I think, the laws on parapets that are effectively like installing railings on your roof. So it was required of civil Israel to have those parapets on the roof to safeguard people so they wouldn't fall off the roof. The question is, are we today required to have parapets on our roofs uh, because of Deuteronomy 22? And I would say, well, I don't think we're required to have railings because Deuteronomy 22 says it, but because the principle of general equity that's discussed in the Westminster Confession, I forget if it's in the London Baptist Confession or not, general equity is or not, Uh, establishes that principle of safeguarding moral life. And so today, when we see uh, in many jurisdictions, if if you have a pool in your backyard, you've got to have a fence around that pool to prevent toddlers or children wandering over into your yard and falling into a pool and die. I think that is an extension and implication of how that principle of general equity begun in Genesis 1 reaffirmed in genesis chapter 9 is then carried over to today so there's more we could say here but in the interest of time i'll i'll wind down right there
0: no it's extremely helpful and um definitely for those who are just now learning about natural law i I've, i know that they're going to feel like they're drinking from a fire hydrant so i'm, I'm really grateful for uh you just getting uh, straight to the point and, and giving our listeners much to chew on but as we bring today's conversation to a conclusion um, just as we think practically now for, for Christians who um, maybe are brand new to the concept of natural law, or maybe they studied it, but they're, they're looking to go deeper. What are some good resources that they can look into to further um, their knowledge on the subject of natural law? And uh, what are some pitfalls that you would caution Christians yeah. to avoid yeah. when seeking to talk about natural law, particularly with its application um, to how they engage with the state or how they engage with, yeah. with unbelievers uh, in cultural affairs?
1: Yeah, great question, Dewey. A um, couple of resources I'd recommend. Uh, David Haynes and Andrew Fulford have uh, a very short volume published by the Davenant Institute called, I think it's an, uh, an Introduction to Natural Law really really helpful place to begin um i've got several writings online um i hesitate to recommend my own stuff but if you just google andrew walker natural law you'll find quite a few articles online where i've written on this uh jay butachevsky has a volume called natural law for lawyers which it's not actually just for lawyers it was written for a primer for lawyers but it's really just a, a very very readable lay level introduction to natural law. Um, and then his book, Written on the Heart, I would also recommend, is very good. Uh, and then Stephen Wedgworth has a very helpful essay at Desiring God, that is kind of a, a shorter essay, Introduction to Natural Law, that I would firmly recommend. Um, lastly, um, is The Abolition of Man by C.S. Lewis. I think that's one of the most important texts of the 20th century, I have all my students read that book Uh, and so go to the abolition of man. That is Lewis's articulation of the natural law. Uh, Okay. Things I would warn against, uh, and it would be this Dewey, just because you invoke the natural law doesn't mean you're going to persuade your interlocutor to agree with you because the nature of sin is going to ensure that if they are stubbornly committed to willful disobedience, it doesn't matter what you say to them. Short of their conversion, they will be content to live in their irrationality. Um, and that's that's a very, I want, I want to labor there for just a second. You can point people's inconsistencies and irrationalities out and they will not care. They will look you in the eye and move on to the next subject. And I think that is, a, that is the fruition of living Um, sinfully, in my opinion. The second warning I would say is never, ever invoke the natural law to the exclusion of mentioning or invoking scripture. Um, I always want to make sure that when we think about natural law, we think about it in terms of both special revelation and general revelation. That special revelation attests to, to the reality of general revelation, but because of sin, general revelation on its own a is never going to save someone special revelation is the only product that will save someone uh but then secondly i mean along those same lines never use the natural law to not mention jesus um i'm i in my book i'm i'm writing about the centrality of jesus in the natural law colossians 1 john chapter 1 christ is the logos he is the reason that order and intelligibility and reason holds together in the first place. So Jesus is at the heart of the natural law. He's not an afterthought to the natural law. So just never use this discussion to avoid the name of Jesus. If they are embarrassed of the name Jesus, they will also be embarrassed of natural law as well. And so you might as well trot out both.
0: Amen. Dr. Walker, it's been a delight to have you on the Covenant Podcast. Thank you so much for your time today, for all of your insights, and for your willingness to continue to promote awareness about the natural law through your scholarship. Looking forward to seeing you in a few months, my friend.
1: Dewey, thanks so much, man. I'll see you in January.
0: Yes, sir. And to our listeners, we hope you found today's discussion to be edifying and thought-provoking. And until next time, we wish you grace and peace from the Covenant Podcast. God bless.